chapter 15. Yes, chapter 15. Okay. So let's review a little bit. I'm going to go back to chapter 9. Okay? Just from chapter 9. We're going to back up just a little bit, get some momentum going, a running start. Chapter 9, we learned about the small city. Two kings are fighting over complete domination of all the limbs of the body. Godly soul and the animal soul both want complete control. Okay. In chapter 10, we are introduced to how that war plays out in one persona known as the tzaddik. All right. And we, we learn about two levels of tzaddik. But basically what they have in common is they have won the war. War is over. Okay. Chapter 11, we learn about another persona. Who is that? Russia. The Russia. And the Russia, how's he handling it? Well, there are good days and bad days. Sometimes the enemy has control, and sometimes the good guy gets back control. And uh, there's a wide spectrum of how often that fluctuates. Okay. Chapter 12, we introduce... Chapter 12, we introduce the Bainini. Okay. Yeah, chapter 12, we introduce the Bainini. The Bainini is the one who very much is dealing with an active enemy, but the enemy never has a victory, not even for a moment. The good guy, the godly soul, is always in control. But if he would take a day off, what's that saying? That uh, if uh, all the Arab countries would lay down their weapons, there'd be peace in the Middle East. If the Jews would lay down their weapons for one moment, would be invaded. Okay, so that's sort of like a Bainini. That uh, there's peace, but it's a constant effort to maintain. It's not really peace. It's, it's, there is effective peace. It's as if there were peace with a lot of effort. Okay. Maintenance. Yeah. So that ch chapter 12 we introduced that the Bainini uses the brain rules over the heart. Chapter 13 we spoke more about the Bainini. Chapter 14 we spoke more about the Bainini. Chapter 15, we're going to speak even more about the Bainini. And here in chapter 15, what we're going to learn about is, will it surprise you to find out there are two categories or levels within the Bainini? No. Just like there were two types of Tzaddik and there were two types of Russia, there are two types, two general types. There are more than two types, but there are two general categories of Bainini. And what are they? There's a verse in the Prophets that says, I have seen those who are servants of Hashem, or the one who serves Hashem, and the one who has not served. What's it talking about? Service means effort, not results, effort. So there is one who's getting perfect results, but it's not through a lot of effort. There's a Bainini, there's an interesting concept here. There's a Bainini who's sort of just by default, by luck, by, well, we'll talk about the different reasons why he ended up that way. But he ends up being a Bainini with very little effort. I know you're going to say, whoa, this is very applicable to me, because I have that problem too. I just, I can't help it. I just end up being, I don't even think about it. And I end up never doing anything I'm not allowed to do. It's just, I also have this issue. Okay. So then what's the point of us learning about it? The point of us learning about it is, and this is a, this is a, a very important theme throughout Tanya, that it's not 
just about the end results. It is about the process. It is about the struggle. And the struggle has inherent value to the extent that one who doesn't have the struggle is missing out on something. Now that it goes into describing, here's a little bit of dictuk for you, but an evid and an oivet. Evid is a noun. Evid means a servant. That's who he is. Like a melech is a king. That's what he is. Or a chacham is a smart or wise person. That's who he is. As opposed to what? An oivet. Oivet is a, is a verb. He is serving. That's not who he is. That's what he's doing. So the avid, the one who is a servant, who is he? He's, he's Hashem's servant. What category does that describe? Tzadik. That's a tzaddik. That's a tzaddik because it's just who he is. It's not like he's ha having to overcome anything in order to serve. He just expresses himself and naturally service comes out because that's how he's wired. That's a, that's a tzaddik. Then there's the oivet. The oivet is, hey, it's not who I am. You would hate to see who I really am if I let myself go. But I'm making a concerted effort, and I'm oivet. I serve. I'm serving right now. That's what I'm doing. That's the bainini. Very good. Okay, that's the bainini. However, within bainini, <clears throat> there's one who's serving, and then there's one that has not served. A shaloyavodai who has not served the shepherd. What does it mean he hasn't served? Then he's a Rasha? No, he's not a Rasha, he's a Bainini. But he's not serving. He, he was born with... Okay, there are two ways. So one way could be he was born that way. One, there, there's the nature and there's the nurture. And he talks about both poss possibilities and then obviously a combination of the two. One scenario is that he was simply born that way. Um... That he has very little struggle doing the right thing. He was born a servant. He wasn't born a servant. He's not a tzaddik. He's a bainini. But born a servant. No. What I mean to say is like this. In order to do what he's got to do, it doesn't take a lot of effort. There's not very much resistance. The Alta Rebbe calls him Mitsunin Bitivai. He's mild-mannered. He has a cold nature. So he doesn't have a lot of passions to overcome or to suppress. It's very easy for him to just <coughs> do what he's told to do. Not very hard for him to do that. Uh, because that's just the way he is. Um, I believe there's a technical term for this. <coughs> which is, uh, I think the term is anhedonistic. And, yeah, anhedonistic, you know, like, like, an means not. Yeah, like aerobic exercise and anaerobic exercise. So hedonistic means pleasure-seeking, or one who's uh, motivated by pleasure. So anhedonistic, it's a clinical term. I've heard it used by mental health professionals. Somebody, yeah, in Chassidus it's called mechusar hanot. He just lacks the capacity for a lot of pleasure. So he's very mild-mannered. And I shouldn't say this, especially not on a recording, but I would call him the nerd. <laughs> he's a Bainini because he's... No, I wouldn't call him the nerd. The nerd is very passionate. Depends how you define the nerd. Depends how you define... The passionate about his nerdy... Okay. It depends how you define the nerd. Like but a goody goody. Yeah. Yeah. A lamela. Okay. So it depends which nerd you're talking about. Are they just like the time of the very We have to take a survey and we have to find out how common any of these categories are. But at least conceptually, conceptually, you could wrap your head around the idea of somebody who does the right thing because he was told to do it and he just he's good at following instructions now the other possibility is he wasn't born that way he was just born normal he has a regular animal soul to overcome 
but he was habituated. He got used to it. He trained and he trained, and uh, it becomes a second nature for him. So it's really not an effort. It's really not an effort for him to always do the right thing because he's just on autopilot. In e either way you slice it, whether it was nature or nurture, he was born that way or was inculcated in him, we say that is the Benini who's not serving. He hasn't served because his perfect behavior is not a product of any extra effort or struggle. Now you're going to ask, well, hold on a second. And, and this isn't explicitly dealt with in the chapter, but, but it's a question that I, I, I see always comes up <coughs> with, with anyone who's studying chapter 15. Uh, at, at some point people say, well, hold on a second. I'll ask the question for you. But it, would, it, it, it inevitably comes up in every class. The question is, well, could you explain to me how this Bainini, this non-serving Bainini, is any different than a tzaddik veraloi? Because basically what you're saying is he has no resistance. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to you is like this. Tzaddik veraloi is someone who neutralized his animal soul. Remember, he got it out of the picture, so it's not <laughs> disrupting his life. The Bainini who doesn't serve, he's just like any other Bainini, meaning his animal soul is very much present in his, in his life. Happens to be that his animal soul is very compliant. In other words, it's not like he's doing it for God. It's not like he's doing it because his godly soul wants to be absorbed in the oneness. He's doing it for his own animalistic reasons. I don't know, maybe he's a people pleaser. Maybe he's just... Nice. He's just nice. Maybe he's just... Not... Simple. Inventive enough to think about ways to misbehave. Maybe he's just simple. Maybe he's just straightforward. Whatever it is, this is his animal. You know, some animals, you know, like... Some animals make better pets. Some don't. But it's his animal. That's his animal. So it's not holy. No, the, the behavior is holy. The results, the behavior results are holy because mitzvahs are coming out. But the motivation for it, it's not holy. It's just, it just, is. It's just who he is animalistically. And you would think, so here's the chiddush of it, you would think, wow, what a lucky guy. He hit the lottery of animal souls. When they were dealing out animal souls, he lucked out because he got a really mild-mannered, compliant like, easy to domesticate, easy to train animal soul. And look at the, you know, look at the rest of us. We're, 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 we're it's like, you know, the dog owners who, they, they flunk out of obedience school. I brought my dog to obedience school, and they told me, you know, I'm sorry, we have to take this dog somewhere else. Take him to the dog whisperer, we can't do it. Um, so we're jealous of that guy. And chapter 15 says, no, don't be jealous of him. Why? Because he produces the end results. But it's not about only about producing the end results. The, 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 the process has inherent value. Because after all, at the end of the day, this is about serving Hashem. It's about service. It's not just about producing the results. It's about service. So the fact that this guy is lacking the struggle, that's a problem. Not to be envied. It's actually, it's a problem. To the extent that if you were that guy, you know what you would have to do? You would have to find your ceiling. You'd have to find where you start to hit discomfort and push yourself a notch beyond. So Yalta Rebbe talks about um, the sages in the Gemara. They talk about one, the difference between one who learns his lesson a hundred times and a hundred one times. That learning a hundred times isn't even learning. Now we say, what? A hundred times isn't even learning? Yes, by the way, once we finish this 53 chapter overview of Tanya, we're going to start all over again. We're going to do it a hundred times. And it still won't even be learning. So for us, you know, reading something twice is pretty serious. But in the times of the Gemara, it was commonplace. It was just normal. You learn everything a hundred times. It's just normal. So that's not even called learning. Learning is a hundred one times. 
that one time that goes beyond. And that one time that goes beyond the hundred is equal in value to all the first hundred times. And the sages liken it to the donkey drivers of their day. In the old days, in the Talmud times, they didn't have Uber. What did they have? They had donkey drivers. And the donkey driver rates were 10 parsas for one zoos. These are Talmudic um, measurements and currencies. But what's pertinent is that what if you would want to go 11 parsas? What if you want to go just one extra parsa? So then it would be two zoos. It would be double the rate. Why? Because the way that the donkey driver market worked is a regular trip, it was a flat rate, a regular trip in town was considered to be a certain amount, and it was a flat rate, but once you go one past that, that set amount, now all of a sudden it's double. Because once you go beyond the norm, once you go beyond what's regular, what you are uh, habituated to, that one step beyond has as much value as all the steps leading up to it. I mean, this is, the, 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 the sages point to the example of the, the way that donkey drivers are charging because it's, a, it's, it's an example that's not theoretical, it's, you know, it's, it was a practical thing. That's the way it worked in their time. You're talking about mm. economics. About Today it would be a car lease. It's 25 cents for a mile, whereas it, you never had to think about miles before you went over your miles. And then it becomes, it can add up very quickly. Yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works with the car lease, but this would be it's that like there's a certain basic. rate to drive a certain amount of miles, and then if you go one mile over, it's double. It's double. It's um, like doubles. getting a taxi from JFK. If you go over the boundary lines, <laughs> right, it's exactly what it is. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Wait, if you get a taxi from JFK to where? Nassau County. County. To Nassau County? Right. Once you cross Once the city cross line. Right. Oh, you so you have to have them drop you off on, on, on in Far Rockaway. <laughs> That's the trip? Yeah. They drop you off in Far Rockaway, so you're still in Queens. Yes, the borderline. But if you cross from, the, from Queens County. to Nassau County, boom, double rate. Double, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's exactly like it's not. But it's still, it's still an incremental rate. It's not. It's not it, it the same thing. But it's the rate doubles. Well, the rate doubles, not the, not the total. But not the total. Not the total. This is the total. This is this even more the total. Yeah, yeah this is the total. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But your total is double. No. If you drive as many miles in Nassau County as you did in Queens. But this is, it doesn't matter. If you cross the border, okay, and now all of a sudden, yay, it can turn right, right on red. <laughs> okay, but what happens, once you cross that border, boom, that's it. It's double the total. And you say, why? Why double the total? And they say, well, because this is considered, you know, a normal trip, and now this is an abnormal trip. Well, but it's only... One mile more than a normal trip. It doesn't matter. Normal is a certain amount. It's quantified. And then once you go beyond. So the sages used to say, well, they still say, but the, 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 the origins of the, of the phrase are, are from antiquity. That study a hundred times, that's normal. A hundred one times, that's abnormal in a good way. That's when you're really breaking yourself, you're going beyond So the Altarebbe says like this, even if you were one of these by default Bainan, it wouldn't be sufficient for you to say, well, look at my perfect behavior. I'm a Bainan. I'm very proud. Look at, look at this. I constantly do the right thing, including never wasting a moment of Torah study and never do the wrong thing. And uh, that's pretty good, I'm a Bainini. And, and, and the Altadeba says, well, yeah, you're a Bainini, but you're not serving Hashem. Where's your struggle? 
where's the conflict? Well, what can I do? I just wasn't given that conflict. Well, there's something you do. Find out where's your level. Let's find your peak level. Let's see what you would have to do in order for, it, for you to feel the burn. You know, if you're not feeling the burn, you're not doing enough, you're not doing it, uh, enough reps. So it's like, I, I did 10 reps, nothing, I didn't feel anything. Okay, the trainer says, so now you gotta do 11 reps and then you're gonna feel a burden and then you're gonna be accomplishing something. Yeah. So what happens, so say, say you're on this level and, and you don't get angry, you're not frustrated, you don't have anxiety, everything else, but you go to the next level, now suddenly it's like driving up with a random kit in, you know, oh, heavy traffic. Oh, this is such a good question. Okay. So then, now I'm doing the various that I wasn't doing before. This like, how do you balance that out? Wow. This is such a good question. Okay, I'm going to repeat the question. This is so good. The question was, basically, come on, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Leave good enough alone. Because let's say I'm one of these guys, and I'm perfect right now. And then you tell me, take it up a notch. Let's, let's raise the difficulty level here. And then I raised the difficulty level, and what you said, the way you phrased the question was brilliant because you said, and I start to feel distressed. You know, I'm, I'm now experiencing, I haven't been experienced the whole time. Being a perfectly behaved Jew has actually been easy, pleasant. And now I'm taking it up a notch and I'm feeling, what were the words you used? What's Dorothy? No, I was the and now you're feeling anxiety and and and, 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 yeah, and I'm getting angry and getting ornery because because I'm being pushed beyond my emotional capacity. Yeah, that is such a good question. So now that I'm being pushed beyond my emotional capacity, and now I'm at risk of messing up and fail. I never failed before. I was perfect before, and now you took it up at difficulty level, and now I'm at risk of actually losing my perfect behavior. Okay. I've actually never heard the question formulated in that way. But it, but it is a perfect question to be asking at this point. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Because like I said, the Benini is introduced in chapter 12, and we learn about the Benini 12, 13, 14, and 15, and then... Um, after this chapter, we don't really describe the Benini anymore. We move on to techniques, methods for becoming a Benini. Um, but the very end of chapter 15 is sort of, it sort of foreshadows what the next two techniques are going to be. All right, let me, let me just back up. So far, at least the way that I've been teaching it, we only really have one technique. And that technique was taught to us in chapter 12. Remember I was saying before, the first eight chapters are largely informational. It's introducing us to a whole new lexicon, a new worldview. Then <clears throat> chapter 9 starts to become more about the application. But we don't really have our first technique to becoming a being until chapter 12. Remember what I said that was? Self-control, very good. Which the technical term for it, if you want to lift the word straight from the Zohar, is if the brain rules the heart. Okay, very good. This technique, it's very interesting how, I was going to get into this next week, but it's, it's very interesting how when, when, when you learn time, you practically... When you look, when you're looking at it as as a guidebook, not just as as concepts, it is very intuitive how the book flows, and how one chapter just naturally leads into the other. It's very organic. Um, so, you brought me ahead to what I was going to talk about next week, but we're going to talk about it right now. Next week, what was I going to tell you? I was going to tell you like this. <clears throat> Next week, meaning chapter 16. I was going to tell you, okay, now we have a method. Now we have a technique. It's called self-control or self-discipline or the brain rules over the heart, which we defined as impulse control. 
which we, which we said is innate and inborn and everybody has it, it's universal, it's just human. Remember all that we were talking about, about, that, about that lady I saw in the parking lot? In the grocery store parking lot? With the, yeah, with the perfect uh, impulse control. Okay. But everybody has impulse control and just a question of exercising it. All right. The question is, now that we're exercising perfect impulse control, how are we feeling? Honestly, let's be thoughtful about this. How are we feeling? Okay, well, on the one hand, let me get out of the way of, uh, of the, let me just say, yeah, we are proud because we're executing perfect behavior. If indeed we are controlling ourselves, yes, we're proud of the result. But also, how are we feeling? Repressed. Repressed? <laughs> I agree with that. That's honest. That's real. Of course we are. You're constantly working. Constantly working, which is tiring. And, um, and we call it white knuckling. You're just holding on so tight. You're holding on so tight. And, and you're just resisting. You're pushing. And it's like a spring. You take your hand off one minute and it's going to pop up. If Tanya ended at this point with just this technique... I, uh, I shudder to think what it would actually look like in application. If our only tool were self-repression. Now, I don't discount it as a tool. It's a very important tool. When we get started at the beginning, it's our only tool. And, and, and the simple reason is because, you know, I'm feeling distressed because I've changed my outsides without having yet changed my insides. So what's the alternative? Go change my insides first. Remember we spoke about that last week when we were doing chapter 14? About, you know, the, the bet. Mm -hmm. Change your behavior. Mm -hmm. Or the first, the first scenario. Change your, um, your insides, your emotions right now. Change your behaviors right now. Or change your emotions over time. Over time. Right. So changing my emotions is a long-term project. And, and one that I'm not guaranteed perfection in. Because if I could hit emotional perfection, then I'd be a tzaddik. Right, okay. So it's going to take a long time, and I'm never going to 100% get it. Um, but I can change my behaviors right now. So when I start, my first tool that I'm given is, don't worry about your insides. Remember we are talking about it last week. You don't have to do everything you feel like doing. And you, don't have, and you don't have to feel like doing everything that you do. Control yourself. So that's definitely how we begin. That's what we start with. However, if that's all we have, then we're going to go around feeling constantly repressed. Which is not a terrible thing. I mean, it's like... It's not like I'm saying, oh, poor Bubala, you're uncomfortable because you have to force yourself to do the right thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, just practically, I want to give Hashem as much as I can give Hashem. And, and I want my plan to be as, as solid and, and realistic as possible. And if my only tool in my spiritual toolkit is self-restraint, that's just not... Well, it, it's, it's not a good plan. It's, it's not sustainable. It's untenable. Now, I have to start with it because i got to get started with whatever I can do first. And what I can start controlling my behaviors right now, even though I don't feel like it. So let me just start with that. But if that's, what I, that's the, the only tool I have, if that's my, my whole lifetime is just about repressing myself, it's not sustainable. So I'm going to need other tools. I'm going to need other tools. There's no question about it. And the tools that I'm going to require are specifically going to have to focus on emotions. Absolutely. Because the, the tool I have right now is don't worry about the emotions, focus on the behavior, which is 
amazingly liberating. It's great news at first when you, when you hear that. But then you gotta think, well, long term, is that all I have? Just ignore my emotions for the rest of my life? Not so practical. So it's not that I'm complaining and saying I don't like it. It's more like I'm, I'm saying I'm concerned that this is not going to deliver the results to Hashem that I want to deliver. Okay. So the next part of the book is giving us emotional tools. And that's hinted to in the end of chapter 15. In the very end of chapter 15... Watch how it goes. He says, okay, so remember, let's go back to chapter 15. This, this mild-mannered guy who doesn't really have a struggle, a very, uh, very tame animal soul, and there's no, there's no struggle. Okay, so then he wants to start serving Hashem, so you're going to have to go beyond what's comfortable and push yourself and find, find where you're uncomfortable. Okay. Altareva mentions there, why... Specifically, why is that not considered serving Hashem? Because if it's to be considered service, then one of two things have to take place. If it's to be considered service, as opposed to just automatic mitzvahs just coming out naturally, if it's to be considered service, one of two things must take place. A, either you're going to have to meditate in order to produce emotions. Remember we spoke about that way back in chapter 3. Where do emotions come from? Intellect. Intellect. So you're going to have to meditate in order to produce emotions which will motivate you to action. If your actions are so automatic that it doesn't require meditating in order to produce new motivation, then it's just habit. So one or A, the first thing, the first condition, it has to be, or it's one of the two, either you have to be meditating in order to create motivation, to to, to do whatever it is that you wouldn't normally be doing without that motivation. Or B, B, at the very least, okay, maybe you're not going to generate new emotions, but release, activate, reveal latent emotions that are within your soul. Now that's just like the last few lines of chapter 15. It's not, it's not um, very lengthy at all, and it doesn't tell how to do it. It doesn't talk about how to do it. But in those few last lines of chapter 15, it really signals, it's like the signposts for where we're going to go all the way from now, meaning from the end of 15, all the way till the end of 25. 16 and 17 is going to be about how to meditate in order to produce emotion. And 18 through 25 is going to be about how to reveal latent or hidden emotions that you already have. So we're not going to answer today the question, um, once we do that, we're opening up Pandora. But So what I'm saying is, Let's, let's go back to the question that was asked here. question of somebody who is, everything's just fine. Why are you tampering with it? Why are you pushing yourself beyond? And here's what I'm telling you. There, the person at this point, and remember, let's pretend that every chapter is like another personal audience with, with the Al-Tarebbe. The Al-Tarebbe wrote the Tanya in order to be personal audience with him. And why do we go back? Why do we keep going back? Because the advice didn't work, Chas No, the advice does work, and when the advice works, it brings us to new problems. Problems that we didn't have earlier because we weren't on that level to yet 
need to deal with it. I mean, I spoke about this in the very first class, if you remember. Okay? New questions. New questions come up. Um, not questions that we should have had earlier, because they're not questions that we could have had earlier, because they're not based on what we were struggling with yet. But now we come to a certain level, and now we have new, new challenges. We hit a new wall. Let's say we're going through time yet, and we're applying everything perfectly as we go. And at this point, at the end of chapter 15, we are exercising perfect impulse control, surely through willpower. And we are feeling, what we are talking about before, out of sorts. And we come to the Alter Rebbe, and we say, at the end of chapter 15, or we could say the beginning of chapter 16, and, and we check in, and the Alter Rebbe asks, how, how, how are you doing? We say, thank God, perfect thought, speech, and action. How are you feeling? How am I feeling? It's a little rough. So at that point, it makes perfect sense that Al-Tarab is going to say, okay, let me teach you some methods for getting your insides congruent with your outsides. And that's why 16 and 17 is about how to meditate in order to create new emotions. 18 through 25 is about a special technique for revealing pre-existing emotions that you didn't know that you had. But either way, the point is, okay, now let's do something about the emotions. Why? Because it's untenable if we don't. It's not a sustainable plan if we don't deal with it. However, let me add something. There's another reason. One reason that we're going to need to learn methods for dealing with our emotions is because it's just simply practical. I mean, for the, for the success of continued... For, for, for continued success, we're going to have to learn these methods. Okay. But there's another reason, a deeper reason. The deeper reason is like this. They're both true. So one reason is because it's untenable without it. But there's another reason as well. Why do I have to learn how to work on my emotions when I was already told to bang in the can just ignore his emotions for now and focus on his behaviors. You know why? Because ultimately, even though I'll never be a tzaddik, and that means I'll never give my entire being over to Hashem, there's always going to be that holdout, that part of me that resists, that wants autonomy. And I'm going to have to fight it, and I'm going to have to surrender it to Hashem, actively submit it, subjugate it to Hashem. Even though that's true. But to whatever extent I can surrender to Hashem, whatever, to whatever extent I can make myself belong to Him, I want to do that. Now, where am I going to start giving away myself to Hashem? I'm going to start with behavior. Why am I going to start with behavior? Because it's the easiest thing to start with. I give my behavior to Hashem. But if I stop there, then I'm basically saying, Hashem, I've given you enough. Imagine the husband tells the wife, isn't it good enough that I did what you said? Do I really have to like it? <laughs> well, if you're being 100% logical, I guess it's true. Who cares if he likes it? But if you're being honest, it's not a nice thing to say. It's a very hurtful thing to say. Because basically what it's saying is, there's a limit to how much of me I'm giving you. I give you my behaviors. Now I want my emotions too. Leave me a place for myself. That's why it's hurtful. Even though it's logically, you know, there's no objection to it. It makes sense. So imagine telling Hashem, I gave you my behaviors. The brain rules over the heart. Isn't that enough? Well, maybe technically, but if you think about it as a relationship, you think about Torah mitzvahs isn't a way of accumulating spiritual points. Torah mitzvahs is a currency for expressing love to my beloved. 
And in that case, I would never tell my beloved, you have my behaviors, back off, leave me my heart. So, even if I had perfect behavior, I would still endeavor to give Hashem my emotions to the best of my capability. That's the second reason. So the first reason why we start the emotional tools in 16, 17, and then 18 through 25, the first reason is a simple reason. It's Without it, it's going to be very, very hard to continue, or it's going to be very... Uh, it's going to be a strain. It's going to be stressful. But the deeper reason is because you've given him your outsides now to the best of your ability, even, you know, understanding that you're not a tzaddik and never will be, start giving him your insides. That motivation answers the question about why the second type of Bainani would ever risk his perfect behavior by pushing himself to a level that it's uncomfortable. You know why? Because whatever level he's at right now, even though objectively it's perfect, but it's not requiring him to give his insights to Hashem. It doesn't require any emotional work. And the only way we're going to force him, we're going to um, elicit from him the need to start working on his insights is by finding a level of discomfort. So is it a risk? Yeah, it's a risk. And if Teta Mitzvahs was all about my performance and my accomplishments and my accruing some type of spiritual uh, reward system, then I would say, yeah, that's really crazy. That's really risky. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Just continue with your perfect behavior and don't mess with it. But if it's about giving as much of myself to Hashem as I can, then even if I were that second type of Benini, the, the, the one who's just doing it by default, I would have to say to myself, you know what? This is not okay the way that I'm living. I give Hashem my behaviors, but I don't give Him my heart whatsoever. You know why? Because my animal soul has no problem just going along with perfect behavior. If I want to start to give Hashem my insides, I'm going to have to put myself in a situation where I'm going to be forced to start to create emotions. Or at the very least, if not create emotions, tap into and reveal pre-existing emotions that were hidden. Does that make sense? Well, this this question is first. if I don't do that by my own cognition, I can trust the fact that Hashem is going to do it for me. Like we say, struggles, you know, can bring us closer to Hashem. That, 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 is, that is also correct, that Hashem, yes, for each of us, that Hashem engineers, tests, raises the bar, puts us on a higher level of difficulty in order to force us to get in touch with our insides. Absolutely. Yeah. What about Tom? Can a behavior create? Well, can, can a behavior create an emotion? Can a behavior create an emotion? Um, to some extent, there is a concept of behavior having a um, retroactive effect, sort of reverse engineering. Um, and yet, and Tanya does mention it. Tanya does mention it. And yet, that is not given to us as, as a, I would say, it, it, I wouldn't say it's not a tool, but it's not a main, uh, it's not a main focus of Tanya. Um, the main tools for creating emotions are, like I alluded to a few times already, but it's worth repeating, 16 and 17 is meditate yourself into new emotions that you didn't have. 18 through 25 is a special technique, which I can't explain uh, right now, about how to tap into pre-existing emotions that you didn't know that you had. Yeah? How do you define emotion? How do you define an emotion? That's a great question. I used a word a hundred times today, and I never said what it means. Okay, do we need, first of all, let me ask you a question, a serious question. Do we need to define a behavior? 
Well, you said that you said that there's a mental behavior change in terms of sometimes intending to think about something in Makshava. You called that behavioral. Yeah, well, I mean, when we when we learned chapter four, we said that thought is also a behavior, something that we do, albeit in our own head, but it's an activity with a duration, start and stop. Um, so behavior is understood, or should we define a behavior? Simple and simple language. Uh, behavior is something that I do. It's a way of expressing myself. Um, I'm not always doing it. In fact, I'm not always doing. Therefore, it's not really essential to me. I may do it, I may not do it. I may do something else, I may do nothing. It's not essential to me. Emotion, I mean, one way of defining emotion is relative to behavior. Emotion is, is, is different than that. What's the relationship? Well, in, in comparison and contrast, first of all. In contrast, an emotion is, is closer to who I am. Like, if you want to know who I am, don't look at what I do. Find out how I feel. An emotion is more personal. It has more to do with my identity. That's in contrast to a behavior. In comparison to a behavior, or in relation to a behavior, emotions are the force or the impetus behind behaviors. Which is really, that second point is really connected to the first one because if behaviors are more external and emotions are more internal, then it makes sense to say that the, the emotion is in back of the behavior. A behavior is an outer expression, albeit you know more superficial, which inherently something that's more outer or more outward is more, more superficial. The behavior is an external or superficial expression of something that's deeper inside. So, you know... Well, superficial doesn't mean it's not real. In fact, sometimes when we talk about behaviors, um, we speak about them being superior to emotion because they're objective. You know, what you talk about real. Real meaning in the objective sense of the value of a behavior has nothing to do with how I feel about it. It, it accomplishes something. So, But superficial meaning uh, in comparison to who I am, in comparison to, to me. My behaviors may not even reflect my true, uh, my truly held beliefs. Sometimes I can be a hypocrite, for better or for worse. Sometimes for better, like we've been speaking about. I can force myself to do something that I don't feel like doing, but I know it's right, so I do it anyway. It could be superficial, it's not sure superficial. Well, the behavior in and of itself is superficial. Um, the emotional component is what makes it makes not superficial. So when you have both, which is, by the way, the concept of integrity. What is integrity? Integrity doesn't mean honesty. Integrity means to be integrated. What's integrated? My outsides and my insides are aligned. And we call that honesty, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't really mean honesty. Honesty just is a symptom of that. Uh, when, I have, when I'm integrated from my outsides to my insides, then I have nothing to be dishonest about. Integrity. Integrity, right. But it, if I'm not, by the way, let's say on the inside I'm not emotionally there yet, so that, you know, the, the sages talk about even the sinners of Israel are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Why, what does it mean like a pomegranate? So there's two meanings to that. One is quantitatively. Pomegranate has lots of seeds. There's a lot of them. So even the sinners of Israel have a lot of mitzvahs. But... Uh, there's a, there's a Tubishvat Sikha that I was speaking about the different species, the different fruits, and what we learn from each of them, and that I was said about the pomegranate. It's also the way the pomegranate has its fruit. You look at other fruits, and once you get past the peel, it's all fruit, it's through and through. The pomegranate's funny, even after you get the peel off, every piece of fruit is contained separately in its own little compartment. So, even the sinners of Israel are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. is also talking about the way in which they're full of mitzvahs. Even when I'm not pure 
fruit through and through, even when I don't have integrity, right? I can still be full of mitzvahs, even though each behavior, because it is not integrated with my being, each behavior exists in its own little compartment, in its own little container. But fine, do it. Be that way anyway. So being full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate means doing the right thing even when you're not feeling it. But in answer to the question, uh, what's an emotion? An emotion is that this is who I am. When my behaviors and my emotions are aligned, then what I do is aligned with who I am. Now, you want to go even deeper, just like emotions are behind behaviors, there's something that's behind emotions, and we learned about it in chapter 3, which is the intellect. So if you really want to know me, find out my worldview, how I look at the world. My worldview, the way my brain functions, leads to my emotions, and then my emotions motivate certain behaviors. All right, but just, I, I want to wrap up because we just went a little bit over time. Um, just wrapping up, chapter 15. We are now ready. Not only ready, but we need some new techniques specifically to focus on our emotional growth we have not focused yet on emotional growth, but now we need it. Whether you're the Bainini who's struggling so hard that if I don't get some emotional tools, I'm going to pop. Or even if you're a Bainini who's not struggling at all, which was our question, um, he's going to need some emotional tools in order to be able to start giving more of himself to Hashem, not just his behaviors, but also his, his emotions. Make sense? It's a good... Can tie a bow on it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>